0: The thing that I didn't realize is, you know, I I was probably, I see it in younger folks now, uh, they hop jobs a lot and they move around. And I I think I always thought that I had to do that to learn and to see different things and get a different perspective. And I had to at my generation. But I think today it's different. You know, I, I think a lot of people would be better off staying where they're at and building a portfolio of clients Mm -hmm. and really building up their knowledge sets.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Engineered Tax Services, a subsidiary of Engineered Advisory, whose goal is to support CPAs and their clients to achieve the highest and best use of time and resources. ETS offers specialty tax services and incentives, which help expand your capabilities and ensure that your clients are paying only what is required in taxes and nothing more. To learn more about Engineered Tax Services, go to engineeredtaxservices.com and mention the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast to receive project discounts and a free CPA partnership ebook. Hi everyone, this is Heidi Henderson, and you are listening to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast for accountants. I am really passionate about people and the industry. And I truly believe that the accounting industry can do better for both our clients and its professionals. So I'm going to share insights from people who have found professional success and who have managed to balance that with their physical, mental, and personal health. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you get inspired. Accountants can earn free CPE from listening to this episode. Just visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. And now, on to the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's show. My guest today is Craig Mitchell with Mitchell Tax Law out of Texas. And if any of you have worked with me in the past and asked any really technical questions or wanted referrals to someone that's really fantastic in tax law, particularly with interesting or complex real estate-related issues or R&D issues... You probably know of Craig Mitchell or I introduced you to him because Craig has been someone that I personally and at Engineered Tax Services, we have worked with for many, many, many years. He's been an incredible resource with us, and he is a wealth of knowledge in terms of his background. His resume is lengthy, so I'm not going to go into all the details because I'm going to let Craig tell us a little bit about the story. And this podcast might be a little bit different than some of the previous ones that I've done. Although I do want to dive into Craig personally getting to know him and how he manages all the ins and outs of uh, of life along with being a successful business owner, I do want to get into some technical topics because I get a lot of the same questions from clients as they relate to real estate, real estate professional designations, the issues with audit, dealing with the accelerated depreciation, and then Craig is just incredible on the R&D credit side as well. So I, I want to be able to share that with a lot of the listeners. Might be a little bit more technical, like I say, than than typical, but I think Craig is such a wealth of knowledge, we'd be remiss to not take advantage of it while he's here. So Craig Craig, thank you so much for joining.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so let's start from the beginning. So where where are you originally from? Where'd you grow up?
0: I grew up in West Texas. So a little town called Odessa. It's uh-huh. um oil and gas country.
1: Oh, wow. So you're still in Texas, have you, but, but if I recall, there was a time when you were not in Texas, right? So you've moved around.
0: I I did. I've moved all over the country actually. So I've, I've got a little bit of wonderlust and I've moved everywhere.
1: (laughs) Okay. But it it's, it sounds like you must be a Texan at heart because it's called you back and that's where you're currently residing and your business is based in Houston, right? That is right. Okay, perfect. One thing I didn't mention in the intro is that uh, you were a former IRS auditor, which I think is really fascinating, too. So I always love to pick your brain about what was that like? (laughs) But before we get there, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, what is your story? How did you get from growing up in Odessa, Texas, to having gone through all these different phases of your life that have led you today to Mitchell Tax Law?
0: I, I guess probably started with law school. I went to Texas Tech Law School, and at the time, the dean was pretty upfront. He this he was clear that this was not Harvard, and um, you know, I, really, I I signed up for a federal income tax class, and believe it or not, it was taught by a first year professor who had just left the IRS National Office. Oh, yeah, and so I didn't know it at the time, but I disagreed with everything that professor said. <laughs> so, um.
1: That's crazy. As it,
0: yeah, as it turns out, he, he had spent the last 10 years uh, dealing with the IRS's response to the Revenue Restructuring Act of 1998. Hmm. So he was on the the position, if you remember those congressional hearings from back then, they were IRS abuses and Congress was really running the IRS through the ringer. And he was the one of the procedure attorneys in the background that was trying to defend the IRS. Hmm. So he had a very slanted view, in my opinion of, you know, the IRS, and he was still very much in favor of the IRS and everything the IRS is doing is correct. And it it was exactly the opposite of my thinking at the time.
1: Wow. So that's pretty interesting. So then how did that lead you from going to law school with a professor that you did at the time, maybe you didn't even recognize that you disagreed with, but then ended up working for the IRS?
0: Yeah, so I I... I, I, the disagreement was very apparent, um, it, for it, it, got, it hooked me. It, um, I knew I was on the opposite side. Um, if that's the IRS position, I was on the opposite side. And so, you know, I, I, like I said, I moved around the country a bit and I, in doing different positions, you know, one, one of the times that I actually applied for the IRS was during the, uh, financial crisis. And the firm that I was working for was having some financial problems. And just on a whim, I happened to apply. I went to the IRS interview, and I actually told them at the interview that I am not interested in working for the IRS, that really I just was curious and was there. I had done controversy work for about 10 years, I think, at that point, meaning tax controversy on the other side for taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, they hired me. (laughs) So that's how I, I got to the IRS.
1: Wow. Okay. And, and you worked in the, in the space of audit. So you were dealing with auditing taxpayers on, it, it, w- were you in kind of a specialized area or was it just in general, any type of tax
0: return? Yes. So I, I started at the um, SBSC, which is a small business group, hmm. specialty tax group for estate and gift tax. So I was an estate and gift tax attorney, but the the attorneys in that group only do audits. And so I audited some of the largest estates on the West Coast. Uh, at the time, I was station at my uh, workstation was in Oakland, California.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so how, I did that. I think you were going to answer my next question, which was how long were you there, or did you stay with the IRS?
0: Uh, I stayed a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, every day that I went to work, I used it as a learning opportunity. So unlike uh, someone who's there for a real job. I was really there just to learn all their secrets. And that's, I made no men, no, no, I didn't ever hide it. Um, And so you would see me often on my floor. You would see me up on chief counsel's floor. You'd see me over in the appeals office. It's because I was engaged and I wanted to learn everything I could. And so I, I worked for the estate and gift tax group for a couple of years. And then I went to the, I transferred to the IRS office of appeals and worked as an appeals officer. And that, that was in Chicago.
1: Interesting. So how I mean, you and I have worked on some audits together with some different clients. Um, The process is very fascinating to me with how it works. We probably don't want to dive into that today because that's a that's all we could talk on that for hours. But what what then led you to leave there? Was your goal to eventually go out and and have this knowledge you were learning or that experience you were getting to be able to start your own practice and and. Represent the other side, or what was your ultimate goal?
0: Really, that was my goal of going to the IRS—is just to learn everything I could. Um, and so, once I a couple years into it, I, I kind of quickly realized I wasn't learning anything else. Um, and so, really, I just went back out to practice. So, the kind of everything was accomplished that I wanted to. Uh, you know, I'm not a career government person, so
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit of a different uh, different game, especially. Than being entrepreneurial because now you've got your own business. How long have you been in business for yourself?
0: So I've been I've had my own practice for I think seven years now.
1: Mm -hmm. How's that been?
0: Uh, It's been interesting. I I should say right when I left uh, law school, I also had started my own practice, and so that that was a completely different experience. Technology has completely changed the practice. Mm. So the things that I struggled with in the past, you know, billing and tracking and you know the IRS sends everything by paper just keeping up with the paper um that the whole system and apps and tools we use today in my current practice make it so much more enjoyable and better
1: yeah that makes sense oh, i mean that's i think in this recent um the the inflation reduction act that was passed it was so fascinating to read through the budget that they're they have allocated for the IRS and yes there's a lot of new agents and i think people are honing into this 87,000 new agents that they want to hire but what I found fascinating was the amount of money that they were looking to put into technology and even something called the callback system, which, you know, like I call Delta and Delta is like, oh, it's a you know, seven minute hold. Let me call you back. That uh, sounds great. You know, the IRS has got a massive budget to try to create the same thing for themselves because, you know, currently you could be on hold for three hours and have a courtesy disconnect <laughs> mm-hmm. is the, the extent of their technology there. So I'm sure it's quite different and of course innovative to to be able to to have your own firm and and adopt all this new amazing technology that we get every single day you know they're they're big enough i think it's very difficult for them to maneuver so as far as you know again this podcast is kind of healthy wealthy and wise we'd like to incorporate everything you know all about the whole person and i've known you for a long time but not really that much on the personal side. So about you personally, I mean, what what do you love to do? What is your passion?
0: Well, I, I have some younger kids. We had kids uh, a little bit late in life, and so you know, currently in my life, I, I enjoy all their sports. I I'm I'm kind of that dad that just takes my kids everywhere. And people that know me, if I'm not with my kids, they're wondering where are your kids.
1: <laughs> That's great. And how old are they?
0: Uh, so my kids are seven, nine, and ten.
1: Wow. Well, those are awesome ages. And what sports are they playing? Uh,
0: they play every sport. So, it's <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, so I I you'll see me sometimes at basketball, soccer, baseball, gymnastics, dance, swimming, you you name it.
1: Wow. So, how do you manage that with I, I know that, you know, we've talked about your tax law, but you have an aspect of also doing tax returns and doing some tax prep working on the CPA side for clients. How do you manage to balance all of those things, with wanting to balance time with your family, raising your kids, with having your own business and handling tax deadlines and the constraints of not just owning your own business, but anything relating to tax usually it, it tends to be quite controlling from a time standpoint. It so does. How do you, you know, what are some of the practices you've deployed to help manage that?
0: Yeah, so I I, I like to tell people we are a teaching law firm in the sense mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we it's, it's hard to start as an attorney. You know, the reason why I had to jump around and I'll move all over the place was because I it's, it's hard to learn what you need to know to be a good, really good tax attorney. And so here at this practice, we we bring on new attorneys and we basically train them from ground up. Oh. Um, it's a huge investment of time. But the trade off is I get to delegate work now. So, <laughs> you know, all the hard time consuming tasks, I actually have people to help.
1: Amazing. Wow. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting strategy. So then how does that work with, I mean, I'm guessing then you have turnover, which would be difficult. I mean, is your goal it, it at some point di- to sort of train someone that would, would stay with you long-term?
0: It is, but at the same time, I'm I'm grateful for any time they're here. And I, I think it's a great trade-off. It's, it's something I didn't have when I was starting out. So mm you know, even if I'm training my next competitor, I, I don't care. There's enough work <laughs> out there that I, I enjoy the time they're here. I like working with them. And that's just how I've been doing it for the last seven years.
1: That's interesting. You know, it's funny because I talked with someone actually on the podcast recently who had a very similar mindset with a CPA firm. And I thought it was interesting because I feel like it's uh, it's a different mindset. And so often, you know, we're looking at how can we retain these people and how can we hang on for the long-term and have the long-term goal you know, having them move up the ranks and take over as a partner or whatever. But there's certainly value in that perspective. So I, I appreciate that. And it's, you know, I, I would imagine there's some intrinsic value for you in feeling that you've made a difference in helping train and sort of grow someone up in the space.
0: Uh, yeah, th- that is true. And we don't have a lot of turnover. But the, if if someone was to leave, I, I would probably help them do so. Because if that's what they want, that's what I'm going to help them do, right? So. Mm-hmm. You know, you know how work is. You get to know people, and you want the best for them, right?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, as far as your business, then shifting gears a little bit into your focus in in your practice, do you have a specific, I guess, vertical or focus in which you specialize?
0: Uh, yeah. So, you know, the, we we kind of have the controversy side, that meaning disputes with the IRS. And we do, we do a lot of those and it's really because we're pretty good at it. Um, And that for me working at the IRS, asking every employee what works, what doesn't work. Um, So I kind of have some insight there that a lot of people don't have because who else is going to be able to ask a hundred IRS employees, what are you working on? What are you doing? What works on your type of cases? So I do those because we're really good at it and I enjoy the work. But as far as technical tax goes, most of my clients and most of the issues I work on do tend to focus either on credits and incentives, R&D credits, bonus depreciation, kind of kind of things that are more challenging.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely some of the technical areas. I know that that's where we've all worked together. And, I mean, you've been such a huge resource for us because there are technical aspects in those areas of incentives and real estate and R&D credits specifically that gets so technical. And, it, you know, we've got 10 people reading through the regulations and we still can't figure out what mm-hmm. they're saying. <laughs> and and it really isn't even about sometimes what the regulation says. It's about reading between the lines and trying to interpret what they mean by certain things in the code. Um, and so do you feel like your time at, at, at the IRS, or, or I guess I should just ask you open-endedly, how have you been able to kind of evolve into a better understanding of reading between those lines.
0: Yeah. So I I guess, the again, it comes back to the work you do, right? And so the nature of my work is usually people come to me when they can't find the answer. And then the other time they come to me is when the government thinks it has the answer and it kind of fills in the blank for you. Mm-hmm. So I, I've always kind of learned from the IRS in the sense that the IRS gets pretty creative sometimes. <laughs> And so, if you see their thinking and how they do it, you can do just the opposite on your side too, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's kind of filling in the blanks in a way that, you know, I always have my IRS head on. What would they be saying about this? But that they're the the opposite of that is also true. What does the taxpayer be saying? Because the same analogy works in reverse.
1: Yeah. Well, you and I have worked on a couple of cases. You know, I think talking first about R and D credit specifically, there, there's one pending issue that's kind of looming um it's actually gaining a little bit more traction i think a little more heat right now because we're coming up on the, the period of time it takes effect but there's there's these two issues that you and i personally have been in dc we have been talking with our legislators and trying to bring awareness to certain issues as it relates to the research and development credit or r and credits or in the code it's rnde credits research and experimentation oh. So for those credits, you know, the two areas we've been looking, one, we've been dealing with architects and engineers and really making sure that the IRS is being fair with that industry as it actually is defined in the code. Will you explain to listeners a little bit about, I I think what's interesting is not without, I guess, diving into the entire issue, why there's been a bit of a discrepancy with especially the small business side of the IRS. When we are looking at r and d credits, particularly with the the ones we're seeing the most audits, has been with architects and engineers and why that's been a struggle. So you and I've kind of gone through this process. I think it'd be interesting to kind of share that with our our viewers,
0: yeah, sure. um so the the r and d credit is one of those unique codes, code sections. Unlike many code sections, they're just straight deductions. You know, on a on a deduction, you can just look at a receipt and you can say, "Oh, that receipt says it's you know X dollars," and I can add up all the receipts. Well, the R and D credit goes further than that. It has a kind of element that you can add up to it, but it also looks to activities. And so, anytime in the code when you see an activity plus an expense and the two are married together, those those are really challenging for the IRS to audit. And so that challenge also is a challenge for taxpayers to comply with. And so Congress set the R&D statute up this way. So when on the issues that we're looking at that are coming up on audit, uh, currently the government is taking a position for smaller architect firms that services don't qualify. And so you can see the challenge from the IRS's perspective of it's a, it's a there's not a list of receipts they can just add up like they can on all their other audits. So they have to really get in there and understand well what is it that the client is doing or the taxpayer is doing, and because of that, there, there's been some conclusions at the IRS that services in particular don't qualify. Now that's not in the code. The code actually looks to activities, and the code actually sets out that it's a product or a result, and it has. But but again, the auditors are skeptical. And so if it's not clearly stated in the code that something qualifies, they often take a position that it doesn't. And I think that's what we're seeing with this particular issue.
1: hmm Yeah. And I know our firm, I can't speak for other firms, but our firm in doing RD D credit calculations, our calculations are being done by educated tax attorneys with years and years and years of experience in just specifically working with businesses as it correlates to this one area of the tax code. What is the typical background of an IRS auditor on the small business side?
0: Yeah, so the, the small business side, usually the qualifications are a couple accounting classes. Many will have a bachelor's degree in accounting. Oh, very few are actually CPAs even, and hardly any are, are attorneys.
1: So basic accounting background, probably have not spent any time in public accounting, if I understand it correctly. And then... Certainly not any type of higher certification from a technical standpoint.
0: That's right. And, and as typically they have several years of experience at the IRS. And again, most of that experience is, is working cases where you're, you're kind of adding up receipts. Mm-hmm. So it's a different, it's their background when they come into the R&D credit, is biased towards, hey, this is different. And they're already on the defensive because it's different than what they've done for the last several years at the IRS.
1: Yeah, well, and that's been the interesting challenge. And so just for listeners, it's been an interesting process because we've been kind of explaining this process to some of our legislators in D.C. to talk about this issue. And we've made fantastic headway. I think it's helped a lot and we'll explain because it is very technical, but a lot of our auditors in this area don't have that technical background for which to effectively audit these types of of, uh, credit claims. So, again, we're making headway, which I think is really positive. There's been some positive turns. The, the second issue we've also been dealing with is this issue of the amortization rule. And I want to bring this up because, you know, I've seen numerous. There was a tax alert that went out yesterday. Um, a couple of things are, are kind of making some noise because this takes it took effect in 2022. But essentially, the impact of that will be felt on the 2022 tax return when those are filed. So we're coming up You know, right now. We're at the end of 2022. If this, you're listening to this later on, um, we have been lobbying to extend this time where they're going to implement this amortization rule, which, Craig, why don't you explain what the amortization rule is first off, and then we'll kind of talk about how things are looking with that.
0: Sure. So so the research credit has a couple criteria, and one of those is you have to have an expense that that is eligible to be expensed under Section 174. And so that's, that's in the R&D tax credit statute. So it kind of pulls in this other code section under 174. So what happened was in the rush to enact the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017, it really was a rush. Um, it kind of got pushed through really fast without a lot of review. But in the trade-offs that they were making, they, they put in there this change to Section 174, And there was no discussion or comment about how that would impact the R&D credit, because nobody was thinking, well, wait, this also ties into the Section 41 for the R&D credit. But all they were trying to do with the change was basically, instead of allowing you to immediately deduct R&D expenses under 174, you have to spread them out over time. So that code section previously gave you the option to do either. You could either deduct them immediately or you could spread them out over time. And so again, the change wasn't intended to impact the R and D credit at all. But by taking it away, now you've got a question of how does that impact the R and D credit? And it wasn't until probably a year or two later until people had an aha moment and wait, this impacts the R and D credit. (laughs) Um, And so the impact on the R and D credit is essentially if you the R and D credit is calculated in part off of wages. So if you employ a bunch of employees who are doing research you can either deduct their wages or you can take an R&D credit. You generally can't double dip. And so the question for this change is under 174, is it, it can, can you truly not double dip? So is your credit gonna be reduced? Your R&D credit can be reduced or are you gonna give up your wage deduction? And so that's what you have to grapple with. Now, am I taking an R&D credit and losing a very large wage deduction? It's almost yeah. a penalty for taking the R&D credit.
1: Yeah, well, one one question that we had that we're, we're working through, and I had a conversation with an architect recently who is reaching out to AIA at the larger national organization to really talk about supporting architects who are claiming R D. d because our understanding is that this amortization rule essentially says that wages that are qualifying research costs or expenses now must be amortized over five years. So let's just say we've got you know, we've got this $100,000 wage cost. Typically, we're going to take that $100,000 against our income, and that's your expense for the year. Under the new rules, if this is if this is research activity, this would be spread out over five years, so they'd get a $20,000 deduction and then $20,000 each year for the next five years. But essentially, they're not getting this $80,000 deduction, the additional $80,000 that they have been historically getting. The the question is, if if let's as we're talking about architects, let's use the scenario of an architect. If an architect is claiming RD credits, clearly those wages have been sort of extrapolated from the larger bucket of costs as research expenses. And let's say they've been claiming RD the last three years. Now they decide, well, I don't want to claim R&D credits against those wages. I'm just going to leave them lumped into just my general wage costs. How, how would that work? Would that So could they go back and say, okay, I changed my mind. This isn't research activity. This is just regular salaries and wages. And I'm just going to keep deducting it, but I won't take the credit because I don't want the, the penalty. How, I mean, how, are, how is that going to be handled?
0: Uh, so the IRS is, is supposed to be working on guidance on this very issue. Right now, I can tell you, I think in the industry, nobody's complying. They're just doing it however haphazard they think is right. But it, is, it does raise an interesting question of, you know, if you've been taking the R&D credit, you've admitted that these, are, these wages are research and development wages. Can you immediately next year not take a credit and somehow just conclude that they're not R&D wages, meaning they're not caught up in 174 or they're deductible under Section 162?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there's no answer to that, um, and, and it gets more complex, actually. So the, the R&D credit, you don't get 100% credit for all the wages. You actually have to compare it to a base period, and mm-hmm. it's the difference, the increase in spending. So if your wage expense went up from a, a base period to the current year, so you're not getting a 100%. All those wages are not actually being fed into your R&D credit. So what about those? Where do those go? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. <laughs>
1: Interesting. Well, again, this has been a little bit of, of something we've been lobbying for as well as to extend this amortization rule. We do have support. We've seen support from both sides. Uh, you've been involved in this as well. Do you have any updates in terms of where things lie with that and and uh, any potential change or extension on this amortization rule taking place?
0: Uh, it's actually been seriously considered on several of the last rounds of legislation. As, as it turns out, there has to be an appetite for tax issues on different rounds of legislation that come out. So this is going to be tacked on at some point to some bill, and it'll eventually pass, no doubt, because it just doesn't make sense, and it's really complex. But So it'll get fixed eventually, but as of now, I don't believe it's, it's on any pending bills to, to, to be changed. But again, the, the next administration that comes in, uh, which we'll be seeing not too far off in the future we'll probably see another big tax package and it will probably be part of that. That would be my guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. Um, So again, for for listeners, uh, it's been interesting. Uh, It would impact how those expenses or those wages are handled for the 2022 tax returns. And I think how the R&D credits essentially, uh, essentially going to be affecting clients, which again, it is some gray area. But we do have support to delay the application of that. So there's a good chance that if that occurs before tax filing is upon us, then we expect that that, that won't happen. Uh, or we'll just kind of continue doing things as they go. So we'll hope for that. But again, it's a, it's a little difficult to getting some of these things passed. All right, so with that, I know that was complex, but I think, uh, again, pressing, we have a lot of questions on that. So I wanted to talk through it. Shifting gears a little bit now to the real estate side. Well, actually, first off, I have one question as it relates to just incentives in general, R&D credits, as well as this bonus depreciation and some of these other incentives. Do you think that these incentives truly drive action by taxpayers? I mean, they're, they're incentives to help push certain activities. Do you see those be effective?
0: Yes and no. Um, I, I have seen some very, very clear examples of where it has. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example real quick. Um, I, I worked on an audit of a, of a client. I won't disclose too much here, but they had a very large project that this engineer thought he could pull off when everybody in the engineering space said it couldn't be done. Hmm. And he took a big financial risk to do so. Not only reputation risk, but financial risk. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not trying to give away too much here because it's confidential, but essentially he, he took that risk on and he did so knowing that he could get an R&D credit for doing so. Hmm. And we're talking about 100 couple hundred million dollar project Hmm. so that that project was successful he it made his practice it built his reputation and it saved the clients who is a government agency it saved them untold millions upon millions of dollars so the public benefit that came out of that r&d credit that he got was magnified in our economy time and time again because of his gumption of taking the risk but at the heart of it it was because of the R&D credit
1: wow that's re- that's a really interesting story i like that insight and that that does bring it home um aside from just simply looking at incentives you know for what they are so that's interesting
0: now there's the other side i also see a lot of clients who and maybe this is the way the incentive should work is it really just lowers their tax and mm-hmm. but it lowers their tax because they're doing highly innovative things that quite frankly most of this design work that the R&D credit in particular incentivizes can be done anywhere in the world. They're highly mobile design. Design work usually isn't tied to a site, Mm -hmm. a specific site. So, you know, is, is the incentive intended to reward those who are doing that technical work in the U.S.? Because if that is the incentive, then absolutely, yes, I see that time and time and time again. What I don't see are clients who are taking the credit and are just shrugging their shoulders, saying, "Well, I'm not going to do that work anymore because I got a credit."
1: Yeah. They're usually <laughs>
0: saying, "Oh, well, that's awesome! I'm going to take more of that work on." Right? I'm not going to, you know, if I have a choice between two projects and one I think is going to qualify for the credit, I'm going to take that work.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Well, and we see that too. Again, on the real estate side with the bonus depreciation, I think it is an absolute driver of activity. Uh, and we see taxpayers making decisions based on the tax benefits uh, because it it absolutely shifts the ROI for certain projects. Uh, so the real estate side's been interesting to see how that's been impacted since it was adopted in 2000, late 2017 and uh, applying to these these real estate projects. So with that said, let's let's dive into real estate a little bit because you're so good on the the technical side of real estate investments and investors and structuring. Uh, I get asked quite a bit about grouping rules, and um, I wanted to see if you could share a little bit about how the grouping rules work and if that's something that you see used often or if it's something that should be used more often. Because, you know, we deal with a lot of investors that have a lot of property, and it, the question comes up sometimes.
0: Yeah, so so grouping is, is one of those interesting decisions you have to make when you fill out your tax returns. Cause there's, there's a benefit to grouping and sometimes there's a detriment. Hmm. And so it's, it's a little bit of a strategy to, you know, think through of, of how you fit into these rules. But for real estate investors, if it, that the typical scenario is you have, you know, one piece of real estate that's throwing off losses and may continue to throw off losses just because of depreciation deductions, and you might have other properties that are profitable and. Again, the, the difference between the two might just be because one has financing with a high interest rate and you're deducting the interest. So you know, there isn't, often there isn't you know, a property that you're thinking, well, it's, it's losing money or it's making money when you factor in the interest costs and the depreciation. But the grouping rules play into this. Usually when you're trying to group, what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, well, wait, I have some real estate that is probably producing a loss after a depreciation. And so the question is, well, how can I make sure that that loss, I'm, I'm able to take advantage of that loss? And so the passive activity loss rules come into play here and they have some material participation rules. I know I'm throwing out a lot of terms there, but uh, material participation, there's some rules that you have to basically meet. And some of those rules based on the hours. So for, for example, one of them is you have to work five or have to have 500 hours or more to be able to say I materially participate, and that in, is a prerequisite to sometimes getting your deduction in the okay. current year. Mm-hmm. So if you group those, if you group properties, sometimes you can count activities on more than one property for that 500 hour test. If you don't group activities, uh, it can sometimes be probably very hard to say you spent 500 hours on one property. Oh, okay. And so that's the background of the grouping rules. There's it's there's a lot more to it that. Mm-hmm. But that's the strategy of sometimes you group to net a income property with a lost property. Okay. Sometimes you're grouping to, because they're all lost properties and you want to take that loss against your other income. So it, it kind of depends on why you're grouping.
1: Yeah. So so that doesn't happen automatically. Like if you've got, you know, let's say you own five rental properties and two of them, you've got losses this year because you did improvements and you know just started renting it. These other ones are spinning out a lot of profits. If they're not grouped, they're not going to automatically offset each other as they come trickle down to the individual's tax return?
0: That's right. So the if you don't make a grouping election, you have to apply the test to each property individually.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. so So we use the grouping rules to be able to kind of combine all that together. And then that leads to the next question, because the next one then is there's a huge strategy of, of taxpayers trying to ensure that they do have or qualify for material participation as a real estate professional. I always have to caveat this that I think for the accountants, i will understand we're talking about for tax purposes. But for other listeners, the real estate professional designation is a tax designation. It really has nothing to do with being a real estate agent or being licensed or anything like that it's more or less this determination that the 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 courts have uh defined as to whether a real estate activity or property is truly something you're actively working on versus it's just kind of a passive investment you use on the side so can you dive a little bit deeper into that material participation and what what are the goals set aside for that by the IRS
0: sure um so so the the rules are found in the code and the regulations and like you mentioned there's several court cases that interpret them but um so there's there's concept of material participation and there's one set of rules there and then there's a separate uh code section and a separate regulation that that is for real estate professionals hmm. so real estate professionals have slightly higher requirements than material participation but it it also includes material participation hmm. so you know think of it as um to be a real estate professional, you've already materially participated because the tests for a real estate professional are higher, okay, more stringent, I should say. So th- those tests, uh, really, there's two of them. Uh, one test is that you have to work 750 hours or more uh, on your real estate activities. And then also, if you have any other activities that are not real estate, uh, those have to be 50% or less. So your real estate activities have to take up most of your time.
1: Okay. And so then that leads us to the question of how do people work through this who have a another job? They have a W-2 or they have a salary that they're receiving for something unrelated. Probably the most common ones, we see a lot of doctors. We see a lot of attorneys. We see a lot of dentists who are buying real estate and really building their real estate portfolios while still practicing. How how do they have to look at that to determine material participation as it correlates to those positions, and then the real estate.
0: Yeah, so there, there's a number of uh, strategies, and you know the the these rules that we're talking about are nuanced, and so the nuance actually creates some of the exceptions. Right? Is so, for example, um, one way to to kind of comply with the rules to be a real estate professional is you get to count the time of both spouses. So if you have one spouse who's working and one spouse who's not a W-2 job, Uh, the spouse who does not have a W-2 job could maybe manage all the real estate and all that time could qualify. So you can kind of combine the time of husband and wife. That's one way. Uh, The other way to be a real estate professional under these rules is, is basically to have passive income and not worry about it. So for example, let's say you can't be a real estate professional you might be able to make investments into things that throw off passive income to offset your passive losses. And so a good example is, and it's a classic, there's a court case on it, is a doctor who has a W-2 from from being a, a physician, has a bunch of rental properties that are throwing off losses because depreciation, but also decides to run part of this practice through a medical, a surgical center and that's passive. He doesn't actually work in the surgery center, and so the 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 income from the surgery center could be very substantial, and that income can offset his real estate losses. Oh,
1: interesting. So we, interesting. we often,
0: so we see that another one. I guess it is more of an exception to the real estate professional because you don't need it. But is the short term rentals? So the Airbnbs, the you know the 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 uh, vacation rentals. Uh, those are not treated as real estate, so they're not per se passive. Mm-hmm. So you're all you have to do is materially participate in those. So there there are a number of little nuances and kind of ways around these rules. Um, but the gist of all of them is you're you're able to use up your real estate losses against your income.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's that's such a huge key with this you know this onset of bonus depreciation on existing homes or real estate buildings and being able to offset that active income. So back to the short-term rentals, I mean, this has been, and my question about do incentives actually drive taxpayers or drive activity? I think this is one that absolutely, I personally have seen significant increase in activity, first off in just overall transactions, the number of transactions occurring, because we deal with a lot of high-income earners who are buying real estate to be able to use the large deductions and offset income. And now this really big movement towards short term, short term rentals, which, you know, this whole all of a sudden Airbnb and you know, this whole thing, you know, what 10 years ago didn't even exist. Now it's this whole thing and we're starting to see regulations start to cut back on the availability of short term rentals in certain areas because it's getting a little out of hand. But I think it's really shifted because of the tax benefits. So back to material participation on the short term rentals. So because that's viewed as more business activity, then how is that booked differently on the tax return than you know, a, a long-term rental that's more passive?
0: It, it is. Um, you know, a short-term rental is is actually treated as a business. So it's a mm-hmm. Schedule C business. And, you know, as, as a business, it's just reported that way. It's not treated as a rental on a Schedule E. And so the it, it's interesting because, you know, the, if, if you ever own a short-term rental, you You kind of understand why it's treated as business because it actually does take more work to do those mm-hmm. but that extra work does any losses that are thrown off does make them eligible to be offset against wages and other items
1: hmm. and And without regard to this five hundred hours, is that right, or the fifty percent
0: uh well there you still have to materially participate, and so to materially participate, there's a whole series of roles that of ways to qualify for that. One of which is you can you can have a hundred hours.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: So if you if you've ever had a short term rental, you will know that hundred hours is not hard to meet because of the <laughs> turnover. There there's some work involved, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to have this conversation because again, these are questions of scenarios we face every single day with a lot of our investors and a lot of people looking at ways to help. Reduce income tax when they have a lot of income. How can they invest this income to help continue to, to grow that, build their portfolios? And, you know, if they can reduce their tax liability and, and use that money they're paying to the IRS to, to reinvest, then uh, it's kind of a win-win for those investors. So, you know, with everything that you've learned way back to going to college, sitting with that professor that was somewhat questionable in his opinions or bias, I should say. If you could go back, what do you, what do you wish you knew? what What would you tell your 20 year old self that you know now?
0: Um you know, I, I've had a lot of opportunities. I've, I've come across a lot of great people over all these years. I've, i looking back on it, so so many great opportunities and people out there that the the thing that I didn't realize is, you know i I was probably I see it in younger folks now. Uh, they hop jobs a lot, and they move around. And I, I think I I'd always thought that I had to do that to learn and to see different things and get a different perspective. And I had to at my generation. Oh, yeah. But I think today is different. You know, I, I think a lot of people would be better off staying where they're at and building a portfolio of clients
1: okay.
0: and really building up their knowledge sets. So if if I were talking to my 20 year old self, I probably would say stick find something, a niche practice area and stick with it. You don't, Mm. don't really need to jump around and do all that. Um, you would be better off long-term, you know, and I, again, I've had this practice for seven years. I could have easily started this practice many years ago, but it's, it's building your client relationships and, and really helping people and getting out there. The sooner you do that, the better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good perspective. And in today, Again, back to turnover and staffing issues, we're seeing that a lot across the board, not just in the accounting industry, but with all businesses dealing with turnover and a lot of competition with people pulling others out to give them higher pay. And, you know, I think that your perspective is so valuable because if you really sit back and think about it, just because someone's willing to give you a little bit more money doesn't always mean that's the best decision. That to your point, being in that place, building those relationships, building that network, building your client base—those things probably have significantly more value over time than than jumping ship to another opportunity, maybe at certain times. So, it might be you know something to speak to some of our uh, staff people who are out there who are trying to figure out what they want to do, or you know, being recruited left and right because that's a, <laughs> a big thing right now all over in the country. So, really interesting. Well, Craig. Your insights are always so helpful, and if listeners want to reach out to you to chat with you about any of these topics, tax-related or law-related, tax law-related, uh, what's the best way for them to contact you?
0: Yeah, so uh, website, uh, mitchelltaxlaw.com. Uh, there's a phone number on it. Just give us a call.
1: Beautiful. Great. Yes, and feel free to reach out to me as well. I've got uh, Craig's email signature with a scheduling link, which is very handy. <laughs> uh, always love that, Craig. But Craig, thank you so much for your insights. You, you always bring so much to our clients and you always are able to answer questions timely in a way that I can rely on and, and I know that our clients can rely on. So you've been incredibly invaluable to us and uh, I just appreciate you always for being here. So thanks again for joining. Hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the podcast and we'll talk with you again soon.
0: Thank you.